days I listened to the voice inside my head I never thought that I'd be someone who could be misled I wanted the mirror to show me Something I could not see I needed explanations for expectations I could never reach I know I'm not the only one who's ever cried for help And Jesus did for me what I could not do myself I believe we're living in an age right now in the West when the beginnings of persecution of the Christian church can be clearly seen by anybody who has eyes to see and ears to hear. Up to this point, we've lived in almost protected status, and it's been a blessing. But I think those days are drawing to an end, and I think we just need to be honest about it. One of the things that we need to consider and what we're going to be talking about today in this fellowship is the differences between the morality of Christianity and the false moralities of this age. Take your Bibles and go to John 16. And it says, all this I have told you so that you will not go astray. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he's offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. They are doing something they think is right, right? They're making a judgment. They're making a moral judgment. They think that by killing you, they're doing the Father a service. Right. As distorted and perverse as that sounds, it's a moral judgment. And it's something that if you notice on TV, people are constantly talking about morals, morals, morals. They'll say it's moral to treat people of all colors with equality. Is that a good moral? It certainly is, because God is a God of all people. Right. But then people will turn around and say that it is morally correct to treat people of the LGBT community with that same deference. No, it's not. They don't have the same deference, according to Scripture, that a person of color has, all right? And this is a moral judgment. It doesn't mean that the Christian is commanded to go out and and poorly treat or ill-treat people who are LGBTQ, but it does mean that we need to make a distinction between a person's ethnicity and a person's chosen sexuality, okay? But this is just an example of morality. I think it's very important in this age that we differentiate between Christian morality and the morality of the world. Why is Christianity important? And that's a good question. Why is Christianity important? Go to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11. I was thinking about this record this morning. Look at verse 24. It says, By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. So he had the entitlements, right? The entitlements of being a grandson of Pharaoh, and he refused to be known as this person. He chose, verse 25, to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. So clearly, Moses made a moral judgment. He made a judgment between two things. Either I live in opulence and I live in notoriety and I receive all the blessings of an entitled lifestyle, or I live with this poor Hebrew class of people, the down and outers, who are righteous before their God, right? So, and I was thinking sin in whatever category we want to talk about has an appealing quality to it. It's something that beseeches us. It's something that tempts us. We're tempted by it. Even in a situation where we're standing up against pressure and we sin due to pressure, sin is always a choice. 
It may be a choice of opting out of whatever we're being confronted with, like Jesus in the garden, right? He was being tempted to take an easier path, wasn't he? And so, you know, not only is sin pleasurable, but sin is the lesser, easier path a lot of times. Adam sinned because the idea of being like a God and knowing the difference between good and evil appealed to his sense of self-advancement. It satiated this newfound envy he discovered in his soul from the devil's temptation that reasoned that God hadn't given him everything that he needed. That's something that the devil lied to him and said that God really isn't his sufficiency. Sin always has to do with the will. It's a choice, always a choice. If it wasn't a choice, God couldn't hold you accountable, right? That's pretty simple. And that's why it's so spiritually preposterous that many Christians teach that free will is an illusion. They have no idea of what they're saying, right? Sin is always a choice. You don't have to turn there, but Romans 7:14 says, Paul says, we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm unspiritual. I'm sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. Or what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do it. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. I'm not, but the law is. See that? And so you see this difference between our ideals and our practical application, right? To know and to desire to do what is right. We have this conflict within us. We know the right thing, but we desire to do something else, okay? Our wills are circumvented by the temptation of sin, all right? It's the experience that every Christian has to battle, to know the right thing to do, but to be enticed to do something else, right? Uh, there's this uh, uh, passage from A.W. Tozer I wanted to read. He says, at the base of all true Christian experience must lie a sound and sane morality. No joys are valid, no delights legitimate, where sin is allowed to live in life or conduct. No transgression of pure righteousness dare excuse itself on the grounds of superior religious experience. To seek high emotional states while living in sin is to throw our whole life open to self-deception and the judgment of God. Be ye holy is not a mere motto to be framed and hung on the wall. It is a serious commandment from the Lord to the whole earth. In James 4, 8 and 9, it says, Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into heaviness. The true Christian ideal is not to be happy, but to be holy. The holy heart alone can be the habitation of the Holy Spirit. That's A.W. Tozer. Isn't that great? I thought that was exceptional. So uh, today's sharing comes from a conversation that our family had last week at the dinner table on Christian morality, that everything that we think and do leaves an indelible mark on our souls. It's the mark on the conscience, which no one sees in this life, but which each of us will have to either endure or enjoy forever. Life is a series of choices, and the same person desires to make the right choices, okay? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a passage that I uh, really like out of uh, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, and I thought it was very well done. It's called The Three Parts of Morality. So go ahead and sit back and listen to what I'm going to read, and then we'll, uh, we'll chat about it afterwards. 
It says, there is a story about a schoolboy who was asked what he thought God was like. He replied that as far as he could make out, God was the sort of person who is always snooping around to see if anyone's enjoying himself and then putting a stop to it. And I am afraid that is the sort of idea that the word morality raises in a good many people's minds. Something that interferes, something that stops you from having a good time. In reality, moral rules are directions for running the human machine. Every moral rule is there to prevent a breakdown or a strain or a friction in the running of that machine. That is why these rules at first seem to be constantly interfering with our natural inclinations. When you are being taught how to use any machine, the instructor keeps on saying, no, don't do it like that. Because, of course, there are all sorts of things that look all right and seem to you to be the natural way of treating the machine, but do not really work. Some people prefer to talk about moral ideals rather than moral rules and about moral idealism rather than moral obedience. Now, now it is, of course, quite true that moral perfection is an ideal in the sense that we cannot achieve it. In that sense, every kind of perfection is, for us humans, an ideal. We cannot succeed in being perfect car drivers or perfect tennis players or in drawing perfectly straight lines. But there is another sense in which it is very misleading to call moral perfection an ideal. When a man says that a certain woman or house or ship or garden is his ideal, he does not mean, unless he's a fool, that everyone else ought to have the same ideals. In such matters, we are entitled to have different tastes and therefore different ideals. But it is dangerous to describe a man who tries very hard to keep the moral law as a man of high ideals, because this might lead you to think that moral perfection is a private taste of his own and that the rest of us were not called to share it. This would be a disastrous mistake. Perfect behavior may be as unattainable as perfect gear changing when we drive a car, but it is a necessary ideal prescribed for all men by the very nature of the human machine, just as perfect gear changing is an ideal prescribed for all drivers by the very nature of cars. It would be even more dangerous to think of oneself as a person of high ideals because one is trying to tell no lies at all instead of only a few lies, or never to commit adultery instead of committing it only seldom, or not to be a bully instead of being only a moderate bully. It might lead you to become a prig. A prig is a self-righteous moralist, I guess. And to think you were rather a special person who deserved to be congratulated for his, quote-unquote, idealism. In reality, you might just as well expect to be congratulated because whenever you do a sum in arithmetic, you try to get it quite right. To be sure, perfect arithmetic is an ideal. You will certainly make some mistakes in some calculations. But there is nothing very fine about trying to get or trying to be quite accurate with each step of, in each sum. It would be idiotic not to try, for every mistake is going to cause you trouble later on. In the same way, every moral failure is going to cause trouble, probably to others and certainly to yourself.
By talking about rules and obedience instead of ideals and idealism, we help to remind ourselves of these facts. Now, let us go a step further. There are two ways in which the human machine goes wrong. One is when human individuals drift apart from one another or else collide with one another and do one another damage by cheating or bullying. The other is when things go wrong inside the individual, when the different parts of him, his different faculties and desires and so on, either drift apart or interfere with one another. You can get the ideal plain enough if you think of us as a fleet of ships sailing in formation. The voyage will be a success only in the first place if the ships do not collide and get in one another's way. And secondly, if each ship is seaworthy and has her engines in good order. As a matter of fact, you cannot have either of these two things without the other. If the ships keep on having collisions, they will not remain seaworthy very long. On the other hand, if their steering gears are out of order, they will not be able to avoid collisions. Or, if you like, think of humanity as a band playing a tune. To get a good result, you need two things. Each player's individual instrument must be in tune, and also each must come in at the right moment so as to combine with the others. But there is one thing that we have not taken into account. We have not asked where the fleet is trying to get to or what piece of music the band is trying to play. The instruments might be all in tune and might all come in if they had been engaged to provide dance music and actually played nothing but dead marches. And however well the fleet sailed, its voyage would be a failure if it were meant to reach New York and actually arrived in Calcutta. Morality then seems to be concerned with three things. Firstly, with fair play and harmony between individuals. Secondly, with what might be called tidying up or harmonizing the things inside each individual. And thirdly, with the general purpose of human life as a whole, what man was made for, what course the whole fleet ought to be on, what tune the conductor of the band wants it to play. You may have noticed that modern people are nearly always thinking about the first thing and forgetting about the other two. When people say in the newspapers that we are striving for Christian moral standards, they, are us they usually mean that we are striving for kindness and fair play between nations and classes and individuals. That is, they are thinking only of the first thing. When a man says about something he wants to do, it can't be wrong because it doesn't do anyone else any harm. He is thinking only of the first thing. He is thinking it does not matter what his ship is like inside, provided that he does not run into the next ship. And it is quite natural when we start thinking about morality to begin with the first thing, the social relations. For one thing, the re results of bad morality in that sphere are so obvious and press on us every day war and poverty and graft and lie and shoddy work. And also, as long as you stick to the first thing, there is very little disagreement about morality. Almost all people at all times have agreed in theory that human beings ought to be honest and kind and helpful to one another. But though it is natural to begin with all that, if our thinking about morality stops there, we might as well not have thought at all unless we go on to the second thing, the tidying up 
inside each human being that we are only deceiving ourselves. What is the good of telling the ships to steer so as to avoid collisions if, in fact, they are such crazy old tubs that they cannot be steered at all? What's the good of drawing up on paper rules for social behavior if we know that, in fact, our greed, our cowardice, our ill temper, and self-conceit are going to prevent us from keeping them. I do not mean for a moment that we ought not to think and think hard about improvements in our social and economic system. What I do mean is that all that thinking will be mere moonshine unless we realize that nothing but the courage and unselfishness of individuals is ever going to make any system work properly. It's easy enough to remove the particular kinds of graft and bullying that go on under the present system. But as long as men are manipulators and bullies, they will find some new way of carrying out the old game under the new system. You cannot make men good by law. And without good men, you cannot have a good society. That is why we must go on to think of the second thing of morality inside the individual. All right. Now, I'm going to pause there and just keep and make the point that a lot of people want to say, well, don't don't read your morality into the law. Right. You know, the law shouldn't reflect morality. The law absolutely should reflect morality, because if the individual isn't right, then the law is superfluous. Right. It makes no no sense. Okay, so I'll pick it up again. It says, but I do not think that we stop here either. We are now getting to the point at which different beliefs about the universe lead to different behavior. And it would seem, at first sight, very sensible to stop before we got there and just carry on with those parts of morality that all sensible people agree about. But can we? Remember that religion involves a series of statements about facts which must be either true or false. If they are true, one set of conclusions will follow about the right sailing of the human fleet. If they are false, quite a different set. For example, let us go back to the man who says that a thing cannot be wrong unless it hurts someone or some other human being. He quite understands that he must not damage the other ships in the convoy. But he honestly thinks that what he does to his own ship is simply his own business. But does it not make a great difference whether his ship is his own property or not? Does it not make a great difference whether I am, so to speak, the landlord of my own mind and body or only a tenant responsible to the real landlord? If someone else made me for his own purposes, then I shall have a lot of duties which I should not have if I simply belonged to myself. I think that's very profound. I think that's hugely important. Does everybody understand that? It's saying that if you were created for yourself, that makes you wouldn't have that much to do, right? Just take care of yourself. But if you were created by your creator for, you know, him, his purposes, then it's an, an entirely different discussion. That you are only here as a tenant rather than a landlord. Okay, so I'm going to read something here. Don't get freaked out about it. This is where he goes off the rails a little bit, but we know different. But uh He's, uh, C.S. Lewis says here, again, Christianity asserts that every individual human being is going to live forever. I mean, at least he's consistent here, right? Uh, we recognize that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him shall not do what? 
perish, but have everlasting life. So it is not true that Christianity believes that all men live forever. They believe that those who, you know, that accept Christ live forever and those who don't die. Okay, so he's not right here. But so let me start the sentence over again. He says, again, Christianity asserts that every individual human being is going to live forever. And this must be either true or false. Now, there are a good many things that would not be worth bothering about if I were only going to live only 70 years, but which I had bet I had better bother about more seriously if I'm going to live forever. Perhaps my bad temper or my jealousy are gradually getting worse, so gradually that the increase in 70 years will not be very noticeable, but it might be an absolute hell in a million years. In fact, if Christianity is true, hell is the precisely correct technical term for what it would be. And immorality makes this other difference, which, by the by, has a connection with the difference between totalitarianism and democracy. If individuals live only 70 years, then a state or a nation or a civilization, which may last for a thousand years, is more important than the individual. But if Christianity is true, then the individual is not only more important, but incomparably more important, for he is everlasting. And the life of a state or a civilization compared to his is only a moment. That's pretty interesting if you think about it, right? Why is, why, you know, God created us in his own image and he made us potentially eternal creatures. So the individual has a significance about it that somebody who didn't believe these things um, would recognize or would fail to recognize these things. Verse 12, it says, it seems then that if we are to think about morality, we must think of all three departments, relations between man and man, things inside each man, and relations between man and the power that made him. We can all cooperate in the first one. Disagreements begin with the second and become serious with the third. It is in dealing with the third that the main differences between Christian and non-Christian morality come out. For the rest of this book, meaning mere Christianity, I am going to assume the Christian point of view and look at the whole picture as it will be if Christianity is true. So isn't that something? So does everybody get the three categories he's talking about here? What's the first category of morality? Man's relationship with other men, right? What's the second category? Man's relationship with himself. And what's the third category? Man's relationship with God. Isn't that something? Go to Second Peter chapter 1. And look at verse 3, chapter 1, verse 3. It says, His, God's divine power, has given us everything that we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may partake in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world by evil desires. Okay, so God has given you all things that pertain to life and godliness, and that through that we can escape the corruption in this world. Verse 5, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. Isn't that great? So there is this hierarchy of sorts here that you are adding to. 
as you add, add to your faith goodness and as you add to your goodness knowledge and as you add to your knowledge self-control. Now, we're not talking necessarily sequential either here. We're doing all this as an ongoing process. We're not saying, okay, I've got to get my faith in order and once I've gotten my faith in order, then I'll start adding goodness to it. Now, this is an ongoing thing. All right. And so then with my godliness, I add to my godliness, brotherly kindness. And with brotherly kindness, I add love. And look at verse eight. It says, for if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to be effective and I want to be productive in my knowledge of Jesus Christ. I think that's important. But if anyone does not have them, what? He is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. I think this is significant. Nearsighted. Being spiritually nearsighted. I think a huge swath of contemporary Christianity has allowed itself to become nearsighted. They have forgotten. They have forgotten that they are, by nature of their new birth, by nature of Jesus Christ, they have been separated out from this world, that they are busy chasing this world and chasing the values and the morals and the ethics of this world. And they have forgotten that they've been cleansed from their past sins. Therefore, my brothers, in verse 10, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall. How about that? That's a big deal right there. So let's uh, let's go over briefly here the three parts of Christian morality, the relations between man and man, morality in social relations, right? I think about the point that he made there that, you know, the rationale that enters into people's minds that, well, as long as I'm not hurting anybody else, it should be fine. They don't realize that in their you know, their little thing that they're doing, whatever it happens to be, they're corrupting themselves and ultimately they will affect society. You see what I'm saying? You know, we used to and have in this country anti-sodomy laws and anti-sodomy laws were laws against people having homosexual relations. And now people sit back and and in their wisdom laugh at these laws. Well, they have forgotten that morals don't just deal with man and man. It deals with man and himself. And that part of what we're trying to do is keep the corruption out of our society. If you take away the moral laws that deal with the individual, what happens? Corruption proliferates. It flourishes. But anyway, we're still talking about the first part, man and man. And we're dealing with his interrelationships with family and communities and even his enemies. How do you deal in a moral fashion with people who are your enemies? The world has, from the beginning, always defaulted to the simple ethic of the world, which is, anybody have any idea of what that would be? Might makes right, right? When it comes to social relations, if I'm having an issue with my enemy or my, even my friend and we have a disagreement, well, might makes right. That's an ethical value or a moral value. Uh, interestingly enough, when we talk about Christian values, a lot of the Christian values, especially of the West, where do they come from? The Bible. That's pretty amazing. All the rules that we have about the interrelationships between people, a lot of the big ones come right out of the Bible. Take your Bibles and go to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5. Now, this here is specifically an ethic of a believer. This is what teach, uh, uh, Jesus taught. He said in Matthew chapter 5, look in verse 43. 
You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and to send rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more for others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Okay, so that's something, right? So that's an ethic. That's a moral, a moral, that not only are we to love our friends, but we're also supposed to love our enemies as Christians. Isn't that cool? Go to uh, Romans chapter 12. These are just a few examples of morals that we have, you know, in the relationship between humans and humans. Romans chapter 12, look at verse 18. It says, if it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Oh, actually, that's the King James Version. The NIV version is, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Okay, live at peace with everyone. So it's our ethic. We are not a warlike people. We don't go around starting wars with people that were about peace. As we know from Ecclesiastes, there's a time for war and there's a time for peace. For us, the time for peace is most of the time, unless we're, you know, attacked ourselves. Go to Matthew 7. Look at verse 12. It says, Therefore, all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even to them. For this is a law and the prophets, right? So do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's a Christian ethic. Now, it's not necessarily a uniquely Christian ethic. The standard was around before Christianity, but it is a Christian ethic. Acts chapter 20, look at verse 35. It says, I have showed you all things, how that so laboring you ought to support the weak and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said it is more blessed to give than to receive, right? So, so supporting the weak. If you live in a might makes right world, are you concerned about supporting the weak? Not at all. Are you concerned with giving? No, you're concerned with taking. Taking, that's the objective. Um, you know, I think about the ethic talked about in Hebrews chapter 5. You don't have to turn there. But anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature who, by constant use, has trained themselves to distinguish good and evil, right? So constant use, constant use, constantly engaged. You can't speak knowledgeably about morals if you're immoral, something that you live. So when we talk about the relationship between man and man, we're talking about his sense of fairness and justice. I don't necessarily have a problem with the term social justice, right? There is social justice. I have a problem with the term social justice when it's used uh, as a name for a political movement. And that's what we're dealing with in this country, a philosophy um, of identity politics. When we're dealing with humans and humans, we're talking about governance and laws. We're talking about redress and restitution for wrongs. When somebody has done somebody wrong, how do you deal with that in a moral way, right? Restitution. We see a lot of that in the Old Testament of the Bible. And good deeds, I wrote down here. Loving thy neighbor as thyself. The second category that he talked about, C.S. Lewis, was the things that go on inside of man. Man's relationship with himself, his thoughts, his opinions, the opinions that he holds, do they help him or do they hurt him? Isn't that something? 
What's that verse in Philippians? Whatsoever things are good, honest, just, think on these things. A bigger list, but these are the things that are conducive to a harmonious soul. A harmonious soul. And if you have a harmonious soul, what's going to happen to your relationships with people? They're going to become harmonious. It's an inside-out situation. People want to change their outward, you know, their external issues, but they don't want to change the way they think. You can't have one without the other. It's like that ship. You want to have a fleet of ships that is moving in the same direction, and that's not colliding with one another. But the problem is you're not taking care of the ship itself, and its gear system, you know, its steering system causes it to collide with other ships. And there's and the point that C.S. Lewis made here was that laws can't bring about moral, um, you know, quality in a person's life. So his conscience, what is the conscience? We've talked about that. What compels this person to do, uh, or that which compels a person to do the right thing, and that which warns and forbids him from doing the wrong thing. The Bible teaches us that we can harm our conscience if we don't take care of it. It's a guide, but we can hurt our guide. Uh, he talks about values, the values that we hold, right? The different values. That's what we should be teaching our children in the home. Principles, um, you know, a value is a principle that you highly esteem, like honor and honesty and duty and integrity and self-sacrifice. These are all duties and values that a person holds. And then, of course, the opposite of that are the values that we are to abhor, which is selfishness, dishonor, and dishonesty. And then lastly, man's relationship with his creator, his faith, this endeavor of the Christian to be well-pleasing before God. Holiness, that God calls us to be holy. The Bible says, be ye holy, for God is holy. The Bible also says that we are to walk in the light as he is light. The Bible says to be imitators of God as dear children. You don't have to turn there, but Ephesians 3.10 says, his intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly realms according to the eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we approach God with freedom and confidence, right? Our relationship with God. We won't relate well to God if we're walking in darkness. We won't relate well to God if we're uh, unholy if we're living unholy lifestyles, right? So the the real driving purpose of my faith is not that, you know, I have good family relations or that I make a lot of money. Those are all maybe secondary benefits. But the true benefit is that I have a meaningful relationship with God, okay? So that's, uh, that's what I wanted to share this morning. Let me go ahead and finish with a word of prayer, and then we'll talk about it, okay? All right, dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for that. Father, we thank you for the truth of our relations with one another, but most importantly, Father, our relationship with you and, and our relationship with ourselves. I thank you, Heavenly Father, for teaching us to have a blessed relationship, that we are blessed in our deed, and Father, that we are able to bless our neighbors and take care of them, Father, because you bless us first. I thank you, Father, for having a, a clear discernment, a distinguishment between your values, the values of your word, and the false values of this age. 
Father, I thank you for that. I thank you for a profound understanding of your values. In your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Like you just feel like giving up